0: Good afternoon. My name is Karen Griffith-Graga, and I'm Chief Investment Officer of Dreamit. With me today is Camille Renshaw and Chris Mayer, and we're going to be having a lively discussion on the blueprint of urban tech investing.
1: Hey, everybody. I appreciate you guys joining the uh, webinar today. Uh, my name is Camille Renshaw, and I am CEO of Renshaw Co. Uh, we've re- recently rebranded from the Renshaw Companies. We're effectively a family office. Uh, my great-grandfather started uh, with real estate in the southeast uh, a few generations ago. A very different strategy, uh, and I have recently taken the helm uh, of the company. We focus on real estate development, uh, and also just sort of asset management portfolio, uh, that we've had for a long time, uh, just continuing to re lease and manage those properties. And then I wouldn't say, I would say it's half of our focus. I wouldn't say it's half of our portfolio yet, uh, is in FinTech financial technology with a particular focus on real estate or prop tech companies in particular. Uh, I, prior to running the family firm, uh, worked as, uh, gosh, I was a programmer uh, at my very young age of, uh, gosh, I think I started at 14, and eventually had a startup in my 20s that I sold. Um, From there, I went into some real estate ownership of my own and became a broker, real estate broker for Collier's and then the Stan Johnson Company. I ultimately was head of sales for a Google capital company called 10X or auction.com. We traded about 5 billion my last year there. So really incredible experience with Google and Starwood and those types of groups that are uh, the major owners of that company. So now we are really in the market continuing to look for real estate opportunities, small scale development and most actively, just because we want to grow this side uh, uh, so quickly and so you know, uh, at such a rate in the coming couple of years, is real estate tech startups. We're really looking to do seed investments and in series, uh, series A, largely, uh, to get in early and hopefully uh, myself and the family's experience can help grow those companies.
2: Hi, my name is Chris Mayer, and I'm with Suffolk. Uh, We uh, are um, about 35 years old. We have offices in uh, Boston, New York, and in uh, Florida, in Miami, Tampa, Orlando, and Estero. We have offices in California, in San Francisco, Los Angeles, and San Diego, and an office in Dallas, Texas as well. Uh, we are a uh, we're individually owned uh, com- company and we uh, we are about a, a you know three billion dollar uh, general contractor with a self-performed division uh, as well that is uh, in overlapping in those markets doing work for us and for other general contractors. Uh, the history of Suffolk really, More of of sort of the current incarnation of of Suffolk, if you will, is dating back to 2010 when we launched uh, our Build Smart approach to design and construction uh, and general contracting, with a goal of being uh, driving consistent performance across all of our projects uh, across all of our regions and continuing to leverage uh, the people, process, and technology that would allow us to move the um, move the value forward for the owners. For our trade partners and, and ultimately for ourselves as well, um, as we looked at the industry. So, uh, from 2010 until uh, until fairly recently, we've been operating under that build smart uh, approach and that build smart promise. Uh, We've recently started uh, to launch a series of smart labs, which are innovation centers within each one of our offices, uh, where we will showcase the latest technologies, where we will uh, will take major initiatives like planning control and scale those across the organization, where we will become an idea incubator for the workers out in the field to be able to surface ideas, and where we will uh, manage experiments and other R&D with local partners. In uh, in each of those uh, urban areas. Uh, personally, my background is uh, was first in technology um, and then in media. I worked uh, at the Boston Globe uh, for about thirty years in a variety of different roles. Starting again in technology and operations, ultimately uh, was publisher uh, there for the last four years until it was sold uh, to uh, to John Henry of the Red Sox. And at that point in time, then uh, left the organization. I came into Suffolk uh, then as part of the uh, whole desire to look at the uh, construction space and say, how can we begin to transform the construction experience um, by taking a look at uh, what types of technologies and processes and and solutions we can leverage from outside within the industry, but also outside of the industry. And so I'm the chief innovation officer and responsible for looking for those, uh, those different types of opportunities and looking to scale those across the company.
0: Great. Terrific. So as you can see today, we have the perspective of someone with deep operations, family, and uh, investing experience. And then we have the strategic perspective of Suffolk that's looking to partner with innovative companies to bring solutions. Um, So let's let's explore some trends. What are some of the the trends that you've seen over the past 12 to 18 months that have caught your attention and, and how does that play into kind of where you're focusing today?
2: Well, I can tell you what we're seeing, um, what the, the, a lot of the companies who are approaching us are coming forward with sensor technology, sensor solutions. I can talk a little bit more about the, the specifics and what makes those attractive versus what makes those uh, somewhat less so. Uh, but that information capture uh, at a moment in time has been a real, a real trend. Uh, drones, for uh, with the with the changes with the FAA regulations and the ability to uh, to get back out into the drone space, we've seen a number of companies step forward with those capabilities capabilities looking to, looking to partner on solutions um, and then uh, really on the, and those are really technologies which fall under the idea of performance improvement. Uh, we see a lot of people who are talking about and approaching us on, on ways that we could start to chase what uh, what if you look at McKinsey studies are, are talking about as a 25% uh, efficiency opportunity within the construction uh, process and sector. Um, and then lastly, uh, on our end, we're seeing a lot of folks who are coming forward with the idea of data solutions, and that's actually one that we're helping, uh, we're helping to sort of spur along is a better way to, uh, to understand, analyze, and, um, and then ultimately measure the success of, of how we're doing, as well as starting to move into uh, a more predictive state to be able to leverage the, uh, the burgeoning kind of AI machine learning space that, uh, that is coming on board.
0: Okay, Camille, any thoughts? Yeah, I would say that
1: the area that we've really focused on in terms of uh, the prop tech space, again, uh, we've got a variety of companies in, in other components of fintech, but in that particular space, which I think is what interests most the urban tech folks on the, on the line, uh, we have seen, I'd say, you know, it goes back 30 years when there were companies like TREP that were really starting to come forward with data solutions at that point within, on the debt side, you know, super niche. But there's really been very little, there's been just very little tech integrated unless it was CoStar, unless it was LoopNet, unless it was just a large, um, unless there was some way to take um, large data pools and amalgamate it in some way that just makes things go faster. That was sort of the full press until maybe even 18 months ago. I mean, auction.com uh, came out of, they were actually trying to take live auctions uh, in the California space. That was initially what their idea was. Uh, you know, the founder is super tall. I don't know how tall Jeff is, but like six, seven. And just that classic land auctioneer. And he had the idea in the hot California market to take that online. Well, you know, he didn't see the colossal recession coming forward, but that is ultimately how that technology that he developed there in California got used across the country through the recession by a lot of large institutions. But again, it's sort of taking something that we were doing in the live space and just making it go faster. What seems to be changing in the last 18 months with that as the background for PropTech, and I would say is really going to happen more in the coming 12 months, because I'm seeing what various entrepreneurs are doing that may not be out in the market yet, is trying to take artificial intelligence in particular, but a lot of data algorithms, um, regression algorithms to to come behind and do um, predictive work about where appraisals may land how can we use blockchain in terms of title? I mean, blockchain is title. It's the best metaphor I've ever heard for title is how title, like, for blockchain is how title works. Um, but just really trying to figure out, um, I, there's a young group uh, that I know that's associated with 10X. It's trying to take um, the rent rolls and the, uh, a lot of the stuff that we just have to look at if we're gonna buy a property and say, yeah, I guess they really have been paying rent for the last two or three years and trying to certify that so that I can look at it and say it has a stamp on it, like a TREP report has a stamp on it. And nobody has done that yet. All of this goes beyond making things faster. It actually makes it more intelligent, deeper. and takes us into sort of a third dimension. And there are a lot of young people that are owners. I mean, I guess in the real estate world, I'm probably almost a young person. I mean, a lot of the owners are 80 and don't want to even use their smartphones. So we've really had to wait a bit to get the right audience, but it seems like that's happening very quickly now.
0: Okay, so you both have actually mentioned this trend in data and moving forward with the ML and and the AI. Are there particular solutions within that sector that you both that? each one of you respectively is looking for?
2: Okay. Um, so uh, on our our data journey uh, has to start with the challenge of overcoming the data hygiene, right? So we have a number uh, of uh, operational systems um, which do very well what it is that they're supposed to do without a particular, without having been architected with a particular eye toward uh, being able to integrate that information afterward. And so, uh, having a solution to cleansing the data, aligning the data across disparate systems is one of the biggest challenges. Um, moving into data lake technology um, as opposed to as opposed to just the enterprise data warehouse, which uh, had. Which we had started down that path, but then realized that we were burning a lot of cycles doing a lot of work around trying to hit the highly structured environment early in the process, um, without an eye towards where we were creating the most value. So, bringing in some different approaches and methodologies um, from the big data space uh, has been helpful in that regard. Um, and then the 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 other piece, which is something that it, as it relates to anybody we do business with, is is making it clear up front as to who owns the data. Um, and, uh, and that, that, how we want to be able to uh, to get that information what 's the mechanism what's the frequency, um, and what's the completeness of that so uh, so that we can continue to build out that um, that repository of information, if you will, um, and then at the same time started to hire analysts and a couple of data scientists to be able to take a look at what are some of the uh, what are some of the opportunities that we can identify we've been looking at data now much more recently as the way to drive the uh, the not just the sort of partnership decisions, but really what types of innovations create for us the biggest uh, the biggest opportunity in the marketplace. And so, whereas before we had uh, we've been thinking, let's try a variety of different things and innovate, and then see what information comes out of it. We're now starting to say, hey, wait a minute, we have a ton of data. We're starting to turn it into information. The more it can become knowledge, it can help inform what direction we want to go. So those are the areas that we've been we've been prioritizing and uh, and working with, uh, with different partners on.
0: So are there particular pain points or areas that you're really focused on leveraging that data to solve? I mean, is it broad meaning better, bigger, faster, whatever, or are there particular pain points that you're trying to address?
2: So I think the, the answer is yes. And, 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 but the, the rationale or the way we're looking to take value out of that differs a little by each of those. So, um, check me if I'm kind of going on too long, but if you look at the, if you look at where we're looking to ultimately uh, prioritize our our work, if you will, it's around safety, it's around quality, and then it's around performance. And so, in the area of safety, we're looking to collect as much information as possible, um, and that's a place where data science could actually be very helpful. Starting to look for uh, different types, what look like different types of causal factors, moving into predictive analytics uh, as a result of that in the safety space. So that's one set of objectives and one set of uh, one set of opportunities for us. Moving into the quality the the quality uh, space is looking at information capture um, in in real time or near real time related to how the building progress is going, whether that happens to be against schedule, whether that happens to be against uh, pricing, um, and overlaying that with the model, for instance, what are the expectations and how how do I close down the window of recognition of an issue and then decision making to be able to correct and then on the the performance side of it, it's tied into looking at some of this uh, this other reality capture around uh, sensing uh, productivity, uh, overall progress against plan, um, the uh, the looking for uh, interactions between. Um, between objects and people that would ultimately, like around logistics or staging of materials, that would ultimately help sort of smooth out and take uh, take time out of the system. So our levers for performance are time and money, um, which all come back to people and materials and equipment. So it's, it's automating the information and data capture around uh, the activities or the outputs of those Inputs, if you will, which creates the opportunities for us and where we're looking to drive the performance discussion.
0: Okay, Camille, any thoughts on on the question?
1: Um, I actually couldn't say any better than Mike. I mean, I, I started to interrupt him at one point and say, "Yes." I mean, I, I couldn't say any better than Mike, but just sort of, you know, with the overlay of, of what's going on in prop tech. I mean, so you know, some of the widgets are different, but it's it's exactly the same staff. I mean, we. We have, especially as you were initially talking about data and the cleansing of data, everyone in our space has so much data and they, you know, it's, it's so proprietary, et cetera, but a lot of it's worthless um, because the integration component just isn't there or the time involved to integrate that data into a real application is so laborious that it's, you know, it's not worth it. You might as well start over. Um, and a lot of firms are doing that. I think one thing that came up for me, and I don't know if this is a direct correlation, but is worth uh, including in this initial context for the dialogue. One thing about PropTech that is really exciting and attractive to us as a firm and why we've invested so much time and money in that space is because, candidly, the fees are so huge uh, relative to other forms of technology. Um, You know, if you get involved in a... Um, debt refinance. You know, there's um, there's a, a company, CRE Simple, Laura Milichap, is doing. If she manages to take a point on a $10 million de- deal, and she can do a thousand of those a year, her revenues in year two could be extraordinary. And you begin to look and see the players that she's pulled in and what they did manually without technology. And then you add a tech component and some exponential to that and it just gets very um, liquid and interesting really quickly. So at the same time, what would a pain point be in relation to that is that often the entrepreneurs, no matter how well connected and sharp they are, don't always give, especially candidly if they're from the tech space instead of originally from the real estate space, they don't give as much um, emphasis to what could go wrong in the market in the coming, let's call it even two years. It doesn't have to be five years or something. Who knows what's happening in five years? But when you can, when you really are, you know, when you double down in hard real estate, you have to care about financial and and real estate market cycles and where you are in the cycle and where you are in relation to construction builds, as Mike's talking about, et cetera, and what that's going to mean in terms of transaction volumes. And often entrepreneurs don't, Um, go and bend the ear of someone or hire a person onto their team that would be able to have that that level of insight.
0: So there you're talking about experience and history and understanding kind of the the business cycles within kind of real estate and construction. Um, I'm sure we have in our audience entrepreneurs that have more of the tech background than the real estate construction background. You know, give me give me some more on these cycles and how they need to think about it.
1: Well, it depends on what you're doing, right? I mean, Mike's Mike's concerns in terms of construction. I mean, and with, within margins in construction, you know, they, it it varies wildly from sector to sector, but it can be high stress for those uh, developers, you know, or even for the um, uh, end user. It can be incredibly stressful because they're trying to backdate into an opening date in which there's actually money coming through that building of some sort. So um, Michael, I'll let you speak to the construction side, on the, on the transaction side, I mean, the things that we worry about, you know, wherever you sit politically, we worry about um, uncertainty. Um, it's not always what the conclusion is going to be about tax law and what Trump wants to get done or can't get done. It's the uncertainty. Whenever there's uncertainty, then people tend not to do funds, tend not to do deals, they tend to wait. And so you look at the real estate cycle in seven-year chunks is a real average. Although this one may be ten years or something, we'll see what it turns into. Um, but you know, you can follow, and, and Mike would be a great person to help you learn about this. But you can begin to see that New York is usually the first into a cycle. Florida is the last out. You know, it's the, the, it's called the the tail of the dog. Sometimes it's the last one wagging, you know, um, the, uh, you know, you can look at different segments and it kind of depends on what you're emphasizing, but if it's multifamily, um, you know, they often go in first. We've had some things change this cycle about how it works, especially as retail has been sputtering or changing, um, and industrial, you know, industrial is the new retail as it's getting stronger and stronger. Um, I'll let Mike speak to the construction, but those things are what we worry about and tax law and how that's going to play out.
2: So, so picking up on that, that point, um, you know, I think, I think there's a general, there's a general theme here, which, uh, which I appreciate Camilla introducing in the last and then continuing forward with this, uh, with this answer as well. It's it, the technology isn't in and of itself, the thing that's going to, to revolutionize anything here. It's really, it's the process that overlays and then the adoption by the people. And so the more solutions potential providers can come in and figure out how do they plug into, uh, into our process or how can they build some line of sight to help us be able to do that, the less friction there is in that process, then the more experiments we can run, the farther out we can play on the R&D spectrum because the cost and the overhead and the investment on our end, never mind the money, but just in terms of the people's time uh, is less. And so whether it's a data type solution, whether it's a solution that is going to make the data come in in a way that could easily align with something that can create value on the analytics front, or whether it's a solution that can be provided Providing us information and feedback, but works very, very simply and doesn't require uh, to, for us to be able to prototype it on two or three different job sites in regions across the entire uh, country, the easier that can happen for us then the more we will be interested in experimenting and the higher likelihood that we would be able to take something and scale something because one of our one of our key components and this is also another suggestion I would have for folks who are reaching out to organizations just in general understand what the hot buttons are so for us Build smart is a brand promise that we have, which means we're looking to be and drive consistent behaviors across the entire organization. So finding a single project team to be able to try something that would work successfully in a single market is perhaps what we would do as part of a research and development or an experiment. But our objective to make the juice worth the squeeze on that is to figure out how do we take that and scale it across the entire organization to ratchet up the level of safety, quality, productivity. Activity, or and I would throw the fourth one in here too because Camille brought it up. Owner experience. So one of the things we've invested in uh, in the smart labs uh, really over the last year or so is uh, is what I would call advanced visualization. We have a we have uh, two sided three D caves, VR caves set up in the offices. We use HMDs. We use portable three D viewers on mobile uh, to be able to help. Talk about um, what it is that is going to be uh, going to be done, so that people have better understanding, uh, consistency, transparency, and maybe this is just my media uh, background kind of coming through on this. This whole idea about being medium agnostic is with a goal of saying it doesn't really matter what the output is look i love the i love the headsets and those things are really really cool but sometimes they're just not the best mechanism for communicating information however sometimes they are so the more we can integrate for instance that process of taking information and representing it whether it's in 2d 3D, virtual reality in a walk-in space, virtual reality in a headset space, the more we can benefit our owners by being able to to communicate where exactly things stand and what the important conversations are to have to de-risk, take time out of the system, et cetera. And so if we extrapolate that one example out to the other folks who would be approaching us with solutions, the more it can hit our, uh, our workflow and our process and fold into that, helping us understand. How to do that is can be very very valuable. Investing the time to do that.
0: Okay, so let's move into process a little bit, right? So you both, you know, look at startup companies, Camille and PropTech, you and construction tech. Tell us, you know, about your framework for evaluating interesting opportunities and, and what your process is like.
2: Well, so I'll, I'll let Camille go first because she's on the investment side and we're on the partnership side at this point in time. And, and so since since I think that's probably a primary interest, I'll, I can let her go first and then I can, I can double back on the way we look at working with with people.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, on the investment side, it's pretty much initially, if I'm understanding your question, Karen, because I think you want me to kind of go through the nuts and bolts of somebody on the phone. Um, if somebody on the phone, or on the on the uh, webinar, if uh, if something about my background or my family's background were to make you think, hey, there's a, a, a way in which one plus one equals three, um, you know, her experience is going to give us some advisory impact that's beyond just the dollars that our family could invest because that's the way our family is going to think about it, then. The, usually one of you would drop me an email. Uh, I think you would ask Karen first to mention any kind of pitfalls. The thing that drives me crazy is when I get a copy and paste email or a copy and paste LinkedIn from someone who is potentially quite talented, but I realize that they haven't really taken the time to answer that first question. They don't really know anything about where we're coming from. And just because I am in a deluge of email and outreach, usually that goes down the priority list in terms of our response. But if we get an intelligent outreach, uh, either again, cold call or through somebody that we know, we usually set up an initial phone call and kind of get to know each other uh, a little bit. You guys I you have I've gotten this far, you've done some of this, it's like dating. Uh, And so you get to know each other a little bit. Normally, you know, at that point, we'll begin to look at pitch decks, we'll begin to look at numbers. The thing that uh, is a blend of a couple of different mentors that uh, I have, and some of it is reflected in simply Warren Buffett's philosophy, but it's blended a little beyond that. Uh, We have uh, prioritization of we want to look at companies that have potential for great cash flow. We want to look at companies that today already have a stellar team. And Warren Buffett or someone would call that a stellar management team. I don't think you guys have to all be great at management. You just have to be bringing uh, the four the four corners of the earth together on whatever your focus is and, and have somebody in each corner. Um, we do like to see teams of four. Um, because I am a big proponent of their four personality types. And so in there are at least four needs at your company. So I like to see how you guys are approaching it from four different angles. Um, the, I, I should also say we like to see diversity on your teams. That's something that uh, I can just be very honest with, uh, with MIT having so many studies out about diversity and not just women, but all types of diversity. Um, it could be class, it could be race, it could be anything, uh, nationality, backgrounds. We like to see a lot of diversity. Uh, MIT studies have shown that you guys will make more money if you're more diverse, and we believe that. Um, and then the third thing is collateral. And by that, I mean, we look to see, you may not have patents today, but we look to see things that you can patent or something that's gonna become an asset. that's gonna become a, a, a hard collateral uh, that we're gonna be able to Possibly extrapolate and create a partnership with Mike's group or one of our other portfolio companies, or you know, license in some way as it becomes bigger and better. Um, Then, the fourth thing, which generally I won't know for a while, but is worth saying uh, because people don't say it on these calls uh, normally in a family office, looks for this we look for character. We want to feel like you guys have great character, that we have like, trust, respect with you. Even though we may not know you that well initially, just know that we are looking for any red flags in that area. Because we, you know, once we marry up with you guys, we generally don't divorce. So we're going to stay with you for, for the long run. So we, we want that to be a good parent. Uh, once we determine that those things are, are true, we usually run as fast as you guys need us to run. Um, with some of the entrepreneurs that we work with, it's been very early. Um, Their decks have been messy. They don't know what they need. They need a hundred grand to get something rolling. Um, And we will, um, you know, participate at some minimal level like that just to, just because we believe in the person, you know, we believe in the team and we'll kind of go to the next level with them. Um, And that may be in a safe agreement. That may be something really simple. If it's a you know, very early stage. And then it can be much more complicated. And if we're the lead investor, then, you know, we'll beat up all the paperwork with you guys and, you know, you know, run the traps to help you get other investors on board and do it in a timely way. Um, We move really quickly once we decide. That's the great thing about a family office. There's not uh, you know, there's not a big board and I have to go get 30 people's approval. It's just us. Um, the other thing I would say is that we also look at a lot of projects. So you have to distinguish yourself and the timing has to be right for when we're looking to fund things. So that, that's probably the only catch on being a small office as well.
2: Um, on our side, in terms of the, the partnerships, uh, again, as a uh, a company we look initially for core values um that, that align well with what we want to accomplish um we look for uh which for, means what um, core values well for us it's 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 hard work and it's professionalism and uh it's uh it's curiosity and it's um caring um so so i think the um the the components of that are important to us. Uh, And again, the people, the the people you associate with are essentially a reflection of ultimately the people that you are. So, so I think just sort of similar to uh, to Camille's point, we, we are looking for people that we can, we can build relationships with. In addition, we are looking for, um, uh, we're looking for People who can bring us solutions that are around uh, things that create that have the potential to create unique value. So, assuming that everything that that we do has some value associated with it, there's a difference between the things that we do that are valuable and necessary. Like, um, you know, like for instance, we have to we have to do payroll processing and we have to do uh, other types of. Uh, you know, other types of transactional work; uh, those are really important to do. Um, but in general, we're looking to drive efficiencies through through those processes. The things that we can do that create unique value then are the things that help uh, strengthen what our brand promises to uh, to uh, to the owners and to our trade partners and to our employees. And so. Uh, we're looking in those areas for uh, for partnerships uh, or uh, or uh, other types of solutions providers who can uh, who can give us some of those kind of unique um, capabilities that we can package up and leverage consistent with with where we feel like the industry is going which is which is really around a uh, the uh, transformation of plan and control from building the digital twin of uh, of what it is that we're going to do early and then leveraging that throughout the entire process to uh, align the activities lean out the operation and then ultimately manage in, uh, the uh, the the execution process consistent with what those those expectations are. So there's tons of different opportunities for touch points along there. A lot of them turn into things that uh, also in an urban environment are kind of unique problems to solve. Uh, and can uh, you
0: give us some examples.
2: Uh, so uh, like perimeter control, as um, it uh, doesn't sound particularly um, like, a, like a particular differentiator but the way we would be able to uh, to understand and track uh, people who are on our job site off our job site when they're there where they're located from a safety perspective from a productivity perspective um, is uh, is uh, I, we, we think a, a potential differentiator for us, particularly as we integrate that information in. Um, I would look at the at saying in the urban space, then the whole idea of uh, how to manage the people who are, if you're just tracking people, for instance, in sort of the XY plane, using your smartphone or something like that uh, as a base, then you are not making a differentiation between the people who are on the, the 43rd floor and the people who are on the 17th floor. And for all of the things, not the least of which, again, is from a safety perspective, um, that's something. Where, uh, where understanding which floor people are on matters a lot, particularly whether, again, whether you need to get people off the job site or whether you have other work that's going on, crane work or something else that's happening uh, in and around that area.
0: So, so basically, you know, entrepreneurs approaching you, Chris, are, you know, we're good, hardworking people, right? And we think we can help you in these areas of safety, quality, and performance, Right. So what's the best way to present the information to you guys that gets your attention? I mean, Camille, your investment thesis is a little broader, but insofar, Chris, is you're like, we're all about, you know, our build smart and these objectives, should they try to chunk it within your different objectives or... How do you kind of evaluate
2: it? So I I think it's, I think it comes back down to the easier we can make the connection between what is being proposed to us and where it can help us create that value in the organization or within our processes, um, the easier it is to, the the faster it is that we would respond because we don't have to, we don't have to do the the mindshare work of trying to figure out how could that connect in.
0: Do You guys Um, do information interviews with people saying, Hey, we're trying to see if we're a fit for you. Could we have 15-20 minutes of your time to kind of understand your framework? Do you guys do that?
2: Uh, yeah, people who approach us with with ideas and want to connect, we in general would return those calls and uh, and follow up if it doesn't if it doesn't look like it makes sense or we have at some point there's just there's a, a pipeline management if you will. You have too many, too many disparate resources. So uh, we would have a difficult time then being able to meet with everybody. But we would, uh, we would be interested in people who come forward with the different ideas to try to see how those could fit within the organization. One of the other challenges that we have, having been uh, been around and automating uh, the operation for for really decades, is we have we have to be careful about the overlap, buying overlap in functionality. So if we have a solution that does that does three or four different things and a solution that does another three or four different things, but two of them are duplicative, then that's really not efficient for us. And so the whole world the sort of apps mindset of doing one thing very, very well within a framework of say a smartphone that gives you access to all of those different things and creates that unifying, uh, that unifying experience is relatively new to the industry. And a lot of our older uh, technologies don't conform to that. And so Mm -hmm. as we look at filling out different opportunities, understanding how those pieces come together is something else that we spend, we spend a fair bit of time trying to look at. And when we talk to people uh, who have different types of solutions, that's where we would, that's where we would start to see, are we, are we kind of covering the same ground um, as we already have with something else? And is investing time and energy here worth it given what we think the potential upside could be. that's why mm-hmm. helping us figure out what that could look like is helpful uh, because the more time we have to spend doing it means the more time we have to invest before we in in that specific effort instead of uh, instead of maybe uh, something that takes less time and has potentially more benefit.
0: Mm-hmm. so so would you suggest then I've heard a couple of different things right from you Chris, in terms of you know having that, nature being able to deploy across the enterprise. But it sounds like sometimes a lighter integration might be an easier first approach. Yes,
2: yeah, so that's a good point. So we have, we have a process within the innovation space that starts with research and development. And we would do R&D managed by, let's say, the smart lab directors that we have in each one of the regions. If there seems to be enough Uh, potential out of that, we would set up an experiment. And there's kind of a one-page form that you would go through and say, brief description, what are the potential uh, touch points, where are your key milestones? We're going to keep this gated to no more than 90 days. uh, So what are the is this going to be a 30 or 60 or a 90 day process to be able to assess that? And then out of the experiment, we would be able to say, do we think this is something that's worth piloting, start to build a potential business case around that. And then from the pilot process, we would move it either into our toolbox, which would say it could scale everywhere or move it into sort of a category of best practices that would be applicable for certain jobs who have that need, but maybe not as a, as a um, expectation for every single one of our jobs. Right. Okay. So, getting in early on the R and D and the experiment piece of it is something that is, um, you know, we're looking for a fair number of turns in that space because it it it's it's where we can hopefully, if we're going to research something, it's fail fast, scale fast, uh, to be able to move it forward before we start to build out a more elaborate business case and engage more project sites, which just requires more complex uh, project management.
0: Okay. Are there any particular things to both of you that you guys? Either from a proposed solution basis or how they kind of present themselves. Camille, you talked earlier about the cut and paste from LinkedIn and so forth that are absolute turnoffs for you, whether it's you know solution specific, we've seen a hundred of these or kind of habit specific that you would, you know, say to entrepreneurs, please don't do that. Anything well, I think if
1: you just don't understand the market. I mean, I think if you just really don't understand what the customer is thinking, this is one great thing that that DreamIt does is have you guys spend time with customers, and I can't really overstate that. That's the answer to most of the problems that you're going to have. Um, you want to choose who you know what what customers you're vulnerable with, and and really uh, share what you're not great at with. You want to you want to choose those wisely because um, you'll hopefully learn really quickly as you go. But if you just really don't understand the market, it's gonna turn off everybody. The prop tech, I mean, urban tech in general, but I would say every niche of, of urban tech is like this. I just know prop tech best. That there are some very simple red flags that you don't know what the hell you're talking about. And you'll accidentally use something like you won't know what a dock high door is, yet you're trying to in, in, you know put some kind of Brilliant internet of things, forward looking um, chip on all of their um, doors or uh, trucks coming in and out or something and you don't know what a dock high door is. you you got to figure out what is really going on with the sector on the ground. You don't have to be an expert, but you' got to find somebody on your team that is. Uh, so the, that conversation goes smoothly. And also you guys don't have to build something twice or three times, you know, that you really know your customer. So I think that's the, the biggest red flag. Um, a second ago, I don't know if this exactly answers your question, but one thing that I think you had uh, in an email to us, but you haven't asked yet about yet is, uh, is there any concern about an exit? I mean, it kind of goes back to what you are asking before, but it, it definitely would be, in light of this question, a concern. If you don't understand what is gonna happen in terms of getting the, the series A money to the next phase, in terms of, you know, will there be any B interest for this and who is interested? Again, as somebody who invests money, but also goes to investors and asks for money for different startups that we have, everyone is going to ask you that if you haven't gotten it yet you just haven't gotten with sophisticated enough money anybody who has a clue wants to know who ultimately buys you or who buys you in two years it doesn't have to be 20 years but who is that and uh, you know, I can tell you as an example, uh, the the B plus E is the latest startup that uh, we've invested in and we have a role in, I, I have a role in, uh, Brokers and Engineers. And it's a transactional uh, brokerage firm that's run, uh, driven by tech, very much like Compass, but for a very small niche component of commercial real estate. And when I pitched it, uh I guess a week or two ago um, to one of the most senior institutional folks I could have been asking money for, they asked who buys this? And they wanted to know, would it be 10 X, which is a logical question. It's my background. And it's like, absolutely not. It's not going to be 10 X, which somebody who's not paying attention might've, I might've just said yes. Or one of the other people on my team might've said yes because they're not thinking 10X is not a broker and 10X does not wanna be called a broker. They don't wanna be associated you know, with, with having brokers in house. They want brokers to be their clients. We'd be a client of 10X. A more logical takeout for B plus E would be one of the large brokerage firms. One of the ones you would know the name of today that's even partnered on this project might take B plus E out at some point in time because they want the underlying technology. But that—that that, you've got to really know your segment to be able to answer that question and to get to that point. But that's going to be very important to the smart money in in, in this segment. Perfect. I don't know your question, Karen. No,
0: it does. It does. Okay. It's Great. it's those gotchas that you see a lot that you could kind of help our audience avoid. Intelligent. Yeah. Chris, any thoughts?
2: Um, no, I, I would. I would, other than just to, just to echo the come in with a um, come in with an understanding about what the potential fit is. Um, the more work that we have to do to connect what it is that you're proposing with what the opportunity could potentially be for us, the the more time it takes to to be able to evaluate it. And time is the currency that we're trying to to tightly manage here. So the easier it is to to uh, figure out where the potential is the easier people can kind of steer us towards that understanding, then the more likely we are to be able to st- either do some R&D or structure some sort of experiments.
0: I
1: actually, I would I would add, I just thought of another one. This isn't something that like upset me, but it's just something to avoid when you're pitching. Um, I went into a pitch about, a, I don't know, a week or so ago and took one of the CEOs um, and uh, Karen is someone that I've introduced you to. And she is, a blockbuster, vibrant, full of confidence, full of energy, can bust through any wall. And in a really great conversation with someone who's going to invest in her, I I believe, um, that is fairly institutional, she got asked, you know, what concerns you? What keeps you up at night? Which is something that all of you will likely get asked. And she said, fear of failure, which is not a good answer. And I coached her about that afterwards, because if you know her, she's not afraid of anything. So first of all, I think the answer is wrong, but it's also not getting to whatever she's really trying to say. You know, she's trying to say that the thing that keeps her up at night are the relationships with her investors, you know, that she has such pride in that she never wants to let anyone down and that she will work so hard to make sure that everything she promises them can get done if it's within her power. That's a much better answer and more true. And so you guys beat up your pitch a little bit with someone that you trust um, that has done some pitching just so you don't accidentally say something you don't mean. It didn't derail the pitch, to be clear. Again, I think that group will invest with her. But it's something that she's done a ton of pitching. She was one of, um, what is it, Google's young entrepreneurs under 25, She just got into Bank of America's Accelerator. She just got into NYU's Incubator for EdTech. She's brilliant, done a lot of pitching, but that was a wrong answer.
0: So, you know, there's always this interesting gray area for early stage companies uh, based upon their key assumptions. And there's always some data that they do know and some data that they don't know that they have hypotheses about. So... When information's in this gray zone, when they know a little bit, but they don't necessarily know it yet in a statistically empirical way, is there any kind of advice or suggestions you have on answering questions from investors or a potential partner or customer on some of these gray zones where they might have a hypothesis, an idea, but don't really know the answer?
1: Mike, I don't know what your answer would be. But for me, the first part of that is just transparency. That will make me way more comfortable because I'll be thinking it. I'll be thinking you don't know. And if you don't just come out and sort of be transparent that, you know, you've got 80% of the work done on that, but the 20% is still, you know, smoky. That'll make me feel way more comfortable that we're going to have the kind of relationship where you guys communicate that. But I think you can also come up with some prior studies some similar products. You can come up with some kind of data that you know it, it, it extract. You know that I can reasonably extrapolate the same thing that you have reasonably. Um, just try to consider what I'm going to be afraid of in any pitch. If you can possibly put yourself on my side of the table and learn through your pitches what the person on my side of the table is afraid of, that's going to help you provide more and more information about how to address that. Um, There are also different personality types that you're gonna pitch to. And for me, you knowing every last digit of a formula and having it all beaten up, I'm not really that person, but I do have people in my family that you would meet that are way risk averse, and they're gonna ask more questions than you'll ever be able to answer and you just finally have to get them to the point where they're exhausted in terms of asking questions, not that you've answered everything perfectly. Um, so you kind of need to know the personality of the person and you can guess that there's, there's some good tools for figuring out temperament stuff that if you're gonna do a lot of pitching, you should, you should take a look at um, and start to figure out what is it like to pitch to Andrew? What is it like to pitch to Karen? Like those are different pitches.
0: And, and so, what are your suggestions there? And then we'll go to you, Chris, as far as these um, these materials you just referenced to understand different people and how you need to pitch to them.
1: Uh, temperament types. Um, they, there are all these tools. I'm trying to think of the name of one of them, but they're all they're just basically like psychological temperament stuff. There's one that's great for business, and it'll come to me in a second. What it's called? Give me a second, and I'll find it. If that's okay. what you're asking for, yeah. you know, you yeah. Download certain things for free online. You can pay for a course. Um, you know, you want to just get an idea of what there's certain behaviors that people have. Like um, a, a, an example is if someone, if you're sitting at the table, I don't think you guys can see that my arms crossed in this, but if the person's arms crossed and they're leaning forward the whole time and they're shaking their leg the way I am normally in a meeting, they're like go 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 go. That's not somebody who's worried about how to add every digit in the formula that's somebody who wants to say yes or they want to say no and if you've got somebody who's leaned way back and maybe their arms are crossed too because they're nervous but they're trying to take it all in and they ask question after question after question and they're not giving that much information up that's someone who is their top fear is risk that's their top fear and they aren't comfortable with yes and no they're more comfortable with nuanced answers. I'll come up with like one of the, I'll give you that in a second, Karen, but those, those are basic things to learn if you're going to pitch.
2: Great. Jeez, Gee, you just described Karen. She's only asking questions and uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, on, on our, on our end, it's uh, uh, it's, it's when folks come to us uh, and they're really just looking to take advantage of our position uh, in in either the the region, the market, or uh, or the current state of construction. So, if they're looking to do something with us, but take most of the benefit back for themselves, and we don't get um, any real any real long-term benefit from that, then. Then that's uh, then that's that's less likely that we're going to want to do something because because the relationship is just transactional at that point. If we have something where uh, the potential is to do something really unique together, and we're already thinking about how can that um, how can that be something that would uh, would allow us to further differentiate ourselves from from whether it's the competition or just in terms of our ability to deliver on those those kind of key areas, um, then then we're really interested. But it really has to feel like we are coming to the table with something and others are coming to the table with something as well. We we period, periodically have folks who offer to come and come to the job sites and set up some things and collect information, and they said they'll give us a report afterwards. They plan to keep the information, start to, to do some things with that, and then look to potentially start to commercialize that, having gained experience and knowledge off of, uh, off of work on our job sites. And while there are times when that makes sense in terms of just advancing a capability that would be a good thing to have at a more kind of strategic level, we're looking for the people who are really coming to, to us with, uh, with the interest in kind of a shared benefit, um, uh, not just at the moment, but with an eye towards how that could move forward.
0: Okay, great. Karen, it's called DISC. D
1: I S yeah. C. I just blanked. It's yeah. and it's based on the four temperament types: mm-hmm. dominant, influence, uh, steadiness, and compliance. Right. And you can yeah. anybody here can Google DISC temperament test, and they've got a bunch for free. And then everybody wants to sell you something about it. It's based on like Myers Briggs type stuff, but that stuff is so complicated that I don't suggest that for anybody on the call. I think if you can just get it down to something simple, like here are the four types. Here are the basic things to look for in a pitch that would be
0: most useful. Terrific. Okay, great. What about business models? Are there business models today <laughs> that you guys uh, are excited about and support? Or, or have there been some red flags in business models with some of the players that, that you've met with and explored working with?
2: Um, so... Uh, I guess the the things that excite me are the the folks who are looking at solutions that transcend just the construction space. Uh, so as they are coming up Absolutely. with yeah some sort of a capability because then then they understand first of all the the more generalized. Uh, the the potential that they can solve on a more generalized or broad scale basis. They think through a variety of nuance as to how to make it work within those individual sectors uh, or those individual industries. And they are more amenable to doing a deeper partnership with us because their sole, their sole uh, business model isn't built off of deep penetration necessarily just within our industry. So we have the opportunity to create some, some unique value with them.
0: Interesting. You, you you responded in the affirmative, Camille. Do you want to expand on that at all?
1: Well, for me, as I was saying, cash flow, stellar team, collateral, character—that's in the collateral collateral category. You know that when you look at a patent, there's a company actually here in Tampa that is working on something that um, is like the Pied Piper, basically. If, if anybody's uh, seen that on Silicon Valley, it's a very similar product. Uh, but real. And they just have a choice really of which field to go into that would most benefit from data compression. And, uh, I think it is very intelligent, the approach they've taken and the field they're going into first and all of that. Um, but they could choose to come into any segment basically that really could benefit from high data compression. Um, so yeah, that's a, that's a yes. Um, what was the what was the actual question that you asked? Because I think I had a totally different answer a minute ago.
0: Business models. So, what okay. ones you like to see? What what ones concern you? Um,
1: the, the ones that concern me are the ones that don't really understand the money. You know, the, the ones, I mean, maybe this answer is obvious, but that just really don't understand how ultimately the thing's going to be profitable. I, it doesn't have to be profitable in year one or something crazy, but it just to really understand the fundamentals of that and that the product that you've created will have the kind of margins where you can achieve that. Uh, someone pitched me on a product yesterday or the day before, and it was something where, you know, it's a ten dollars a download, and, and certainly, it, to my mind, would be worth ten dollars. Download, but the question is, how big is the market? And when you begin to look at the market, uh, you know, I, 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 I probably had too small of an idea of the market, but the market is finite, um, and just you know, you've got to figure out, as Mike was saying, okay, great, how do we extrapolate that and apply it to a different demographic? Then, if you're going to get a lot of lift out of that. Um, But that's not, you know, just, I assume most of the people on the call would do their math, but to really do math that can have, uh, can endure testing, you know, you've got to have that. Um, Business models, as as I said, that's why we're really interested in prop tech. I love the fees. I just love the fees. Even if it's something that is a $1,500 survey, you know, if it's something that you only really pay a couple hundred dollars to, a lot of these things are being paid to schmoes now, and there's not that much value or that much time associated with that $250 fee. Candidly, I mean, it, it's just a it's just a segment that's ripe for disruption. And then a lot of the fees, you know, the fees that B plus E um, has their their initial two deals that signed up last week. One has a fee, I think. And the other one has a like right under $500,000 fee. That's their first two fees that they're going to get. And the company has existed for six weeks, maybe. So that's, that's brokerage. So the fees are really great. So those are business models that I like. And not every business model can look like that, but I think a lot of the folks that came into, and this is one of the reasons why the disruption hasn't really happened in PropTech yet is they came in and thought they would do everything per user the way that you would do Google AdWords, you know, per user, per click, something like that. And this is a relationship business. You know, Karen's not going to let me sell her anything unless we really talk about it. Now that transaction may go faster because of all kinds of things that give her deep insight very quickly, but she's likely not to buy it without a person on it. So it's just different. But because of that, you know, you can't go to me with a business model where there are going to be 100,000 downloads and, uh, of people like Karen that are going to blah, blah, blah. Like, that, I'm not going to believe you about how that's going to disrupt the segment. And candidly, 10X made a lot of mistakes like that. So I've worked for companies that have made mistakes like that. And when you go back and you put it really in the hands of a relationship, but you're making it faster, you're making it so there's less risk, that the user has more control, you know, that. They, they're going to feel out of control if there's no person on, on a transactional component of a prop tech uh, product. You know? So anyway, we like business models that run like that. And, and those are incredibly scalable, but it's a different type of scale.
0: Yeah. So this, this industry is very much a relationship industry. I think we've all learned that. So we need to wrap things up now. Any final bit of advice to the entrepreneurs out there? Um,
2: I would just say that uh, it relates a little bit to the business model anticipate where some of the future is going to be and carve out the solution ahead of when necessarily people are asking for it. And I'll give you just a quick example. Uh, If in the construction space building plans become potentially confidential information um, similar to to what credit card information is because of the sensitivity of understanding how buildings are put together, particularly certain types of structures, then the way to manage that information um, and and treat it under like PCI standards is very, very different and a solution in that space is anticipating where we may see uh, something in the future and where other companies uh, like ours or like others who haven't really identified uh, confidential information um, in the same way as we do employee information or payment information, that's the way the world's going. So solutions in that space would tend to scale. So it's just an example, but anticipate where do we think, uh, where do we think things are gonna change and then come up with those solutions across industry.
1: Great, Camille. I'm super excited about the segment. I think a place to end it is that I don't think that prop tech has really come yet. I think that is a 2018, 2019 proposition. And a lot of the products need to be created with the market changes that are likely to come during that time period. 2018 will probably be really stable, but 2019, we might slip into another recession. So it, not a big whopping recession, but a, a mild recession. So you get got to create the products with that in mind. But I think there's so much that, that it, the folks on this call could do to change the industry totally change the industry, even if right now you're focused on putting uh, something on cranes. If you can manage to extrapolate some of those ideas, those systems, and get it into something transactional and prop tech, call me. I mean, I'm I'm so excited about where the segment's going. There is going to be, I think, dramatic change. It's just so ripe for disruption. So,
0: Excellent. Well, thank you, Chris. Thank you, Camille, for your time. The information that you provided today has been really helpful.